All right, just by way of review, and uh, refresher for those of you maybe weren't here last week, um, we're looking at the way that our inner responses are affected by things around us. We talked about three things. One is conditions. So this would be things like how tall you are. Not really something that you can change for the most part, but just kind of a fact of who you are. And then the second thing is what effect that has on the way that you look at life. So if you're tall, for example, you're probably used to asking people asking you to get stuff off the top shelf. It's just part of your daily existence. If you're short, you're used to asking people to help you get stuff off of the top shelf. So those are things that just sort of, we sort of just see them as part of life. We don't really think about them a whole lot. But there are potential, there are then our responses to those two things. So, for example, here's the fact I'm a certain height. Here's sort of the effect that that's created in my life. And then here's my response to it. The response that I have to it is the thing that I can control. I can't necessarily, I can't change my height. I can't necessarily change how people treat me because of how tall or how short I am. But I can respond rightly to requests for help to the need to ask for help, all of those sorts of things. That's sort of the point that he makes in the first part of the chapter here. So, uh, some things obviously have lesser influence. I gave you the example of being tall or being short. That usually doesn't create a whole lot of emotional turmoil in our lives. But think about, in contrast, something that we don't have control about that happens to us, like you get carjacked. Somebody drives up, or, or comes up to your window, points a gun at you, get out of the car, I'm taking your car away from you. That's going to have lingering effects for a significant period of time. So, um, you're going to have fears that pop into your head if that happens to you, right? You're going to have um, hesitations about trusting people. We have to not feel guilty about those things that are produced by events outside of our control but we do have to respond rightly to them. Case in point for us, um, obviously Maggie just finished up treatment. There's probably, for at least a very long time, going to be a sense of, this thing is going on. Is it back? What's going on? All of those sorts of things. And what is the right biblical response for us in that circumstance? What's a passage of scripture that would say, what's the right response to those things outside of our control? Okay, trust in the Lord. What else? Okay, yeah. The one where it says, cast your cares on him, he cares for you. Um, don't, uh, different verses that talk about fear. So I can work to have a proper response to these things, despite the fact that a lot of it's outside of our immediate control. And so that's the point that's being made in this chapter. Um, I don't think, Kel, do you remember last week if we went through the illustration of his daughter climbing into the horse corral? Okay, let's talk about that. So, in the book, he gives this account. His wife's from a small town in Indiana, and her parents' property is next to a farm with many horses. And the kids loved to feed the horses, and they knew the number one rule was not to climb into the horse corral. He says, I love them too much to see midget horses trample them. 
A parenting dilemma arose on a springtime visit. One of our daughters rushed into the house, tearfully confessing she had climbed into the horse corral. <coughs> we were immediately confused because this daughter, for whatever reason, loves rules. I knew right away that some other factor had to be in play for her to have climbed the fence. I asked her to tell me what happened, and she described the conditions it took to get her over the fence. My kids have been looking at the horses when their older, cooler cousins came over to play. These cousins are outdoorsmen, comfortable anywhere, and suggested a quick climb over the fence. My daughter resisted, reminding them of my rule. Her cousins pressed her with how fun it would be. Again, she said no. They pressed her again, but this time with the most devastating logic possible. We thought you were our friend. Persuaded, she climbed the fence, set one foot on the other side, and promptly climbed back over to run to the house, proclaiming her transgression. Thus the parenting dilemma, does my daughter get punished for climbing the fence? That question is really the practical outworking of a prior question. What was the cause of her breaking the rule? Was it her own choice or her cousin's pressure? External conditions and active responses are in delicate interplay here and wise parenting will address both. On the one hand, the conditions brought about behavior that would not otherwise have happened. I would have bet my life savings, which is not much, that my daughter would not have climbed that fence had her cousins not shown up that day. The unique pressure that led to my daughter's disobedience included a few factors. The cousins were more local, were local, more familiar with the territory, and had more knowledge than my daughter about the horses. They were older and able to wield the influence of their age. And perhaps strongest of all, she did not get to see them much and knew they wanted to play on the other side of the fence. Without these conditions, my daughter would have likely been content to follow the rules and keep trying to feed the uninterested horses. It is right for me to acknowledge that with her. On the other hand, the cause of my daughter's climbing the fence was her own choice to do so. No one took control of her choices, sending neurological signals to her arms and legs against her conscious will, causing her body to climb a fence. She voluntarily participated in breaking the rule meant for her safety and happiness. She needs to be held accountable for her behavior with the appropriate punishment. Considering this trajectory of influence is vital for me to serve my daughter well in this situation. If I simply punished her behavior, I might sweepingly conclude you climbed the fence because you wanted sin more than you wanted God. This statement is true in a generic way, like saying someone fell off the roof because of gravity. But it is too generic to be helpful. Instead, acknowledging the external conditions helps me better explain her internal responses. I want her to have a deep understanding of her heart in that situation so she can have a greater appreciation of her need for grace. As my daughter and I talked through what had happened, she realized the conditions had exposed certain things in her heart. She did not disobey because she wanted to break a rule. For her, in that situation, her disobedience came from a heart more concerned with how her cousins felt toward her than with trusting her dad and by extension, the God who gave her a dad to protect her. She valued the opinion of her cousin more than the instruction of her dad. By acknowledging conditions, she was able to see better why she chose to climb the fence. So while it's true in one sense, she wanted sin more than she wanted God, his point is, be more specific. What was the particular thing that you wanted, valued, chose over something else? And in this case, it was the approval of my cousins more than the obedience and, and, and what my dad had asked me to do. He said, those who want to help others in personal ministry need to acknowledge this trajectory of influence. They must learn to recognize conditions as external factors that create an ideal response 
between for particular internal responses, an ideal state for internal responses, and then detect what they are in real life situations. Uh, we don't necessarily need to be overly rigid about all these sorts of things, but it is helpful to pause and think about the why of our actions. Sometimes as little kids, we don't necessarily think about it, but as adults, we can pause and we can say, you know, here are the factors that led to this response that was right or that was wrong, and acknowledge our own responsibility before God for our response in those circumstances, even recognizing that the circumstances had a part. I mean, along those lines, you have two kids. One of them does something to the other one, hits him in the arm. Why did you do it? She made me do it. He made me do it. Is that true based on what we're looking at? No. As adults, we know better, so we never say those sorts of things, right? What are some parallel circumstances in which we might blame our sinful choices on factors around us? Okay. What about if we're What about if we're uh late to work? What what might, what might we blame instead? Traffic? What's that? The clock. The clock's got to be wrong by like 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, what else? What are other factors that we could put sort of shift the blame to? Yeah, okay. Ultimately, who is responsible for our choices that led us to that particular point? Us. Now, we will talk sometimes in life about acts of God or extenuating circumstances. There's a hurricane and the road's flooded. That's a legitimate excuse, right? If it's, I wanted to sleep in for an extra half hour, that's a choice that I made. So that, that, these are all sorts of things that are kind of at play in this chapter that we're looking at. So, what about the fact that we are in physical bodies? So far I've spoken of conditions primarily as external contexts, but in a book about a human experience, I must address the basic fact that part of all people's situation is their God-given physical body. He said, I've tried many ways of diagramming how the spiritual activity of the dynamic heart relates to the body. If I diagram how cognitive, affective, and volitional functions relate to one another, where would I put the physical body? I think the best solution is to consider the paper on which the diagram is printed as the body. The page that readers can touch and tear is the necessary platform for the concept to be expressed. Do we determine the genetic characteristics of our bodies? No. Obviously, we have some, res some control over some aspects of our bodies. And um, we'll, he gives three categories. One is age, one is personality, one is mental or physiological ca capacities. I just want to pause for a second because there's a tension in our world today and it comes from different directions. And it's the idea that um, 
if we check off the right boxes, we will always be healthy, our bodies will function the way that they're supposed to, all of those sorts of things. What is that, how, how, how do those sorts of ideas sort of show up in our conversations with people or in advertising or in all of these other sorts of things in our, in our world today? When we're coming into the new year, how's it showing up on all the ads on TV and YouTube and whatever? Gym memberships, buy a Peloton, uh, exercise bike, um, what else? Diet programs. What is the underlying premise or idea that all of these things are trying to get across to us? So that, so that, okay, you'll be happy, okay. Do these things ultimately deliver on those promises? Okay. If you don't follow through, no. Temporarily. Temporarily. Okay. So, here's the, here's the tension. In Baptist churches, we tend to love food and overindulge in it and all that sort of thing. So we need to acknowledge that. On the other extreme, or the other side of things, there is a an attitude that masquerades as holiness, that is, if you deny yourself this, 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 and this, you will be better in God's sight, or you will be better in other people's sight. So, we have both the sin of gluttony and the sin of self-righteousness to contend against, and both are dangers that we ought to watch out for. What are obstacles to us living healthy lives in terms of our bodies? even if we check off all the right boxes in terms of exercise and diet and those sorts of things. What, what things interfere? Disease? Age? Okay. Okay, what's that? Yeah, I mean, all of these factors will interfere. Case in point, uh, one of my professors at seminary, Exercised every day, walked on his treadmill, went for walks outside, all those sorts of things. Had a massive heart attack that almost killed him. Several other people I knew went and visited in the hospital. Same sort of circumstance. They ate the right food, all those sorts of things. There are, there are genetic dispositions in our bodies that can be helped by doing the right things nutritionally and exercise and all those sorts of things, but can't be fully overcome. So, I say all those things to say, depending on where you fall on the spectrum of gluttony to asceticism, correct your thinking biblically, because this person needs to recognize you can do all the right things, and we will still die. Our bodies are a finite resource to be used up for God. And this person needs to realize, because we are only in this life temporarily, there's more than this life, and so we shouldn't give ourselves over to the sort of indulgence that people around us do, because there's a whole lot more than this to live for. And both of those extremes need to be corrected biblically. I say those things because it's easy for these ideas to creep into our thinking, to think that um, the goal, especially based on advertising this time of year, is to be a certain physiological type when it comes to our body, it's to be attractive, it's to be whatever else. And I'm not saying 
we should go for the opposite extreme. I'm just saying our bodies are tools that have been given to us by God. What happens to a knife that gets used? It gets dull, and then you sharpen it, and what happens after you sharpen it? Well, right, but what happens to the knife? You lose material. So I saw a picture the other day. I'll just draw it for you real quick because I thought it was a fascinating picture. So it was a, a, a butcher had a knife, and it looked like this. And then here's the one that he'd been using for like 50 years. And it looked like that. It's a good illustration of our physical bodies. We can't preserve them forever no matter how hard we try. The question is, are we using them well? When it comes to things like sleep, when it comes to things like food, when it comes to things like exercise, all those sorts of things, the goal is not the goal of the lost person to preserve our bodies indefinitely. The goal is the goal of saying, am I a tool that is being used by God to accomplish the goals that he wants me to accomplish? Or am I wasting my body, my time, all those sorts of things in a way that does not accomplish those goals? So, when considering bodily realities, consider how age, personality, and mental or physiological capacities affect how we respond in certain situations. They don't remove our responsibility, but they do have an impact. He says, an adolescent boy faces hormonal and social realities quite different from the 70-year-old married man. What sort of things are struggles for teenagers because they are in physical bodies? Okay. Okay. What, what's just a practical reality of the fact that your legs and arms are a different length than they were a month ago? Pain, awkwardness, difficulty, all those sorts of things. And that's just part of it. What are the realities when you're 80? You're not dealing with those things. You're dealing with joints and whatever else, right? That's not working the way that it used to. Or, or energy levels are lower, those sorts of things. What about your outlook on life? If you're a, if you're a teenage boy, what are things that are going through your mind? Okay. What else? Future. Do my friends like me? What am I going to do next? I mean, there's all sorts of things, potentially, that are going through your mind. When you are on the other side of things, let's say in your 50s or 60s, there, is, there are other things that you're starting to think about. What are some of those things? Okay, yeah. And maybe if you're in, more involved in planning for those things, like you're not anticipating necessarily it's going to be tomorrow. Retirement, how am I going to take care of my family? What happens if I get sick? All those sorts of things tend to be, you don't really think about those things when you're 10 or 15. You do think about them when you're in your 60s, right? Uh, so so our age and the condition of our bodies affects how we view all those sorts of things. Um, he said, the adolescent boy is facing the difficulty of stewarding his potentiality, the old man of stewarding his legacy. Do you agree with that? I think the same could probably be said of young women and older women. You're thinking about what can I do with my life or you're saying, what do I need to pass on to those who are coming after me? Those sorts of things. And, just because, just another brief pause, when you are in that point of 70, 80, 90, God is still using you. I, there was a lady that I've seen a few times since we moved up here who 
um, she tripped outside of the school when uh, at Inner City and fell and broke her hip. And I helped her get back over to her apartment and then went and saw her at the hospital, all those sorts of things. So I think since that point, she sort of considered that she was like my grandma or whatever. And anyways, she would often say things like, why does God still have me here? What is it that I'm supposed to be doing? All those sorts of things. Right after she just got done telling me, here's the person I was able to encourage at the assisted living where I live, or here's the person I wrote a card to, or all of these sorts of things. And so that's part of the answer, right? Not the full answer, but part of the answer. God has things for us to do at every stage of life. And so I just want us to, to pause and think about that for a moment. All right, what about the question of personality moving forward for sake of time? People try to analyze other people's personalities, right? What are some ways that this is done? Okay. Yeah, personality tests. What else? Okay, everybody should be this type of person. Okay, what else? Okay, yeah. I just speak by my, you know, those sorts of things, sure. Um, so I guess the point that I'm trying to get at is there's the extreme of saying, um, there's two extremes when it comes to this. One is the, uh, think about like in dystopian fiction. I don't know, maybe you all don't read those sorts of books, but like the society where you get assigned your job and that's your job. And that's just what you got to do, and you have no say in it. And sometimes those things are tied to like some kind of test that you take or whatever else. Yeah, or you know, just even some vague like societal system set off in the future. That's the one extreme. Society decides what you are and what you ought to do. The other extreme is the you can be whatever you want to be if you just believe in yourself. What's so the danger of this is saying that people have more knowledge than they actually do about how God has made us, that it's a fixed sort of thing that can never change over time. You know, like this is a, this is a factor in marriage, right? You marry somebody and you say, all right, this is this person's favorite food. What might happen after five or ten years? It might change. Um... Or this person loves to blink. That could change too. For a variety of reasons. So in marriage, there's this constant rediscovery of ourselves as people. And the same thing can be true in like career choices, right? It's not necessarily true that you start out doing the same job when you're 20 and you end at 60 doing the exact same job. So that's the danger or the corrective to this sort of like society determines who you are based on a test, assigns you your thing, and that's all that you'll ever do. On the other extreme, what's the reality of you can be whoever you want to be? Yeah. Am I ever going to be a basketball player in the NBA? No. I'm too short. I can't jump. I, I you know, it, that ship has sailed long ago, probably before I was born. So... Um, so 
we could have these crazy ideas about all the things we're capable of or what will take place, and they're not going to happen for some of those reasons that we were just talking about. And so the biblical reality is to recognize there are aspects of who we are that are a function of our genetics and just the unique design that God has created each of us with. And for the people who are like, well, it's just a result of societal conditioning, look at how different each one of your kids are. How much did you have to do with that? Probably not a great deal, right? I mean, you can influence it, you can shape it, you can guide it, but they all come out very different and ultimately have to recognize that that's not necessarily a bad thing. What's the downside of tests that assess us? They cannot describe the core of people, who people are as moral agents before God. What are some of the differences in us? Some folks tend to be highly relational and able to understand the experience of others, but they cannot process theoretical information well. Others can retain impressive amounts of information, but have little creative capacity. Some are quick to make decisions, some are slow. Some are task-driven, others are relationship-driven. These tendencies are at least in part given. He talks about the example of his five kids. This is an important thing, I think, for us to think about. Um, one personality is not any more righteous than another in itself. It is how that personality is uniquely directed by faith to display the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, instead of thinking about... Um, personality in terms of we should all be exactly the same, think about it as a parallel to spiritual gifts. Not as identical to, but parallel to spiritual gifts. What I mean by that is this. God gives each of us in the church abilities, skills, tendencies, gifts to do certain things well. What are some examples of spiritual gifts? What are examples of spiritual gifts? Teaching, okay, love, expressed in things like hospitality. What else? Service, generosity. Uh, think about somebody like Barnabas was an encourager, and the way that he encouraged people was both through his generosity and his words. Um, okay, yeah, sure. So there's a whole host of spiritual giftings in the church, right? What does Paul say about the differences in all those things? Are they good or bad? They're good in the same way that it's good that we have eyes and a nose and ears, right? Instead of just eyes, no nose, no ears, right? So all of those things are supposed to work together. When we think about personality from the same perspective, God has given all of us unique personalities in that we all have a moral responsibility before God to show hospitality, to show generosity, to be kind, to teach, admonish one another, right? All of us individually have a responsibility to do those things. But some will be better at it than others, right? And that's a good thing. And it's a good thing that God made us different because that's part of His creative expression and all of those sorts of things. And so... Um, 
I would encourage you in your marriages and in the church and in your families and in the friendships that you have to see the advantages of God having made people different. When do those differences become sinful? They become sinful if we use those tendencies of who we are to be an excuse for not doing the things that God has called us to do. So, if someone says, it is difficult for me to focus, let's say, does that remove from that person the responsibility to meditate on God and who He is? No. If I say, you know what, my natural tendency is not to like large crowds, I would rather be off by myself reading a book, etc., 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 does that remove from me the responsibility to um, tell my neighbor about Jesus? No. If I have a really outgoing personality, does that remove from me the responsibility to be gentle and patient with people around me? No. I mean, there's all of these things we're going to have, because of just who we are, we're going to have tendencies that we have to work on, but we don't have to do the things that God has called us to do in exactly the same way and to the same degree as long as we're doing the things that God has called us to do. Does that make sense? Like, yes. Or, um, related to that, think about what Paul says to the Corinthians. He says, you guys want tongues, right? That's the one that you've said is the most important. He says two things to them. One is, God gave you all different gifts, so see the value in that. Another is, he says, ultimately, if you're going to pick the best gift, you should all want to be, do prophecy instead of to speak in tongues, because the one benefits everybody, and the other only benefits if there's an interpreter, and in limited circumstances, and all those sorts of things. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was something Paul confronted the Corinthians about. Yes? I think if the, if the mindset is, I'm here to serve God, I know I have limitations, but I know I need to continue to grow, I think that kind of solves a lot of the problems of the I can't, mm -hmm. which I think is, in, you know, this is going to sound worldly philosophy, but saying the words I can't, Yeah. But, but let's think about that for a second, too, just because I, I think that's a good thing to think about. Um, what about if, if someone legitimately can't teach well, 
Is that a problem that's going to necessarily be solved by more practice if God has not gifted that person in that way? So I, I think the, the context is important, right? Sure. Teaching your children versus teaching a large group, a large group. Sure. But that does not re remove this responsibility to teach your children, to teach those who are you are given charge of. Sure. So that's where I would... Yeah. Yeah, and so that, that's good for us to think about. So, I mean, the, so we've got all of these different factors going on, and the bottom line would be, I have to do the things that God has called me to do, but that doesn't mean that, um, uh, for example, somebody that's, that's um, not good at showing hospitality can practice it, but probably shouldn't be the person that's in charge of doing hospitality things at the church, at least until they've made progress or, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and here's another question. Does every church have people to fill all of those slots? So there may be a time period when we're doing things that we're not the best at because there's a need for it to be done in the church. Um, lots of things to think about there. Uh, did you have a quick thing? And then we'll move on for sake of time. Yeah, and so that's, that's uh, like even take something like preaching. We tend to think, well, sometimes we think. I, I came from the context of having gone to a Bible college and a seminary and those sorts of things. Sometimes people think, well, as long as you have the degree, then you ought to have the job, right? So that's kind of the way some people look at it. But biblically, the call to ministry looks like desire, matching the qualifications, recognition by the local church. So... Um, I may want to do it, but not be qualified, or the church says, we don't think you should do it. And so then that doesn't end up being the thing that I ought to do. So I think the same is true of a lot of other things as well, even if it's not laid out quite that clearly. Things like um, other, other spiritual gifts, other aspects of personality. I think we have, to, we have to think about that progression. There's a lot of factors that go into all of those things. And so when it comes to spiritual gifts, we can figure them out by serving in the church in different ways. When it comes to personality, I mean, that's something that you probably have some awareness of, and certainly the people around you do. And there's the aspect of, of us, you know, kind of like if you have a bunch of sharp rocks in a bag and you carry them around, they bump against each other, and they knock the rough corners off. That's what things like marriage and being in the church family and all those things do. They help shape us and mold us. They don't change the fact of the rocks that are there, but they, they mold us and shape us and the iron sharpening iron, all those sorts of ideas. Yeah, but, well, but what I'm saying is that I think sometimes we might think 
like a, a guy who's a like let's say there's a guy who's 18 and he's like God wants me to preach I've heard people say this sort of thing uh, God wants me to preach well how do you know that some people say well because I had this sort of vague mystical vision that tells me it some people whatever other reasons but the bottom line is that's only the first step in the process I can have a desire to do something but there's also the recognition of people around me about whether I actually have that and whether I should be doing that in the context of the church. So there's, there's, it's not as simple, I think, as, well, God's just going to gift me to do it in a way that is disconnected from how he is working broadly in the context. Of the, that's the point that I'm trying to make. So, yeah. All right, so moving on here, this last one here, we talked about age, personality, and now mental and physiological capacities. Um, some folks have high mathematical and logical intelligence. Others have high body and kinesthetic intelligence. Some are skillful at building relationships. Others at building visually beautiful structures. Some people's brains function in the range of normal. Others do not. Whether that is a native capacity or one affected by the conditions, the reality nevertheless stands. We should not assume that everyone has the same set of capacities and incapacities. Um, though faith restores the heart to respond and worship to God, people still await the new creation when corruptible bodies are made incorruptible. He gives the example of someone with Down syndrome. There's a variety of other examples that could be made. There are limitations due to things that are not right with our bodies, whether because we were born with them or whether because of the effects of people around us or all of those sorts of things. We can still honor and glorify God with where we are in the present moment despite all of the circumstances good or bad that have come into our lives and that's an important thing to keep in mind because um, on the one hand we have to recognize someone's limitations if someone has um, a very low ability to process information our expectation should not be to um, Tell that person, all right, I want you to go memorize the book of Psalms by next week, right? That's just not realistic. What could we say, here's a couple of verses from Psalms, and let's go over those and try to help you think about them and, and memorize them? Sure, we could think about it that way, right? And so we have to be wise and careful at how we look at where people are in terms of their abilities, strengths, weaknesses, whatever else, and and um, be realistic about all those sorts of things. Yes? It reminds me of the conscience book mm -hmm. in the fact that our disposition needs to be humility. Mm -hmm. Our disposition needs to be not necessarily just what I want, but asking the question, what does God want? How might he be willing to use Sure. So I, I think that's the, the, the end goal, right? Right, yeah. And so, yeah, and, and along these lines, I mean, when we're thinking about how we encourage our kids, how we encourage one another, et cetera, sometimes we hold up, for example, the idea of being like a doctor or someone that society sees as very successful as being like, that's the goal and anything that falls short of that is, is not important, right? But when we come to the idea of capacities in this regard, we sometimes think about um, um, 
we, we have the idea that someone is better because they do a particular job. And we should instead have the idea that just like there are complementary gifts in the church, there are complementary aspects to our personalities, there are also complementary things with regard to the vocations and all those sorts of things that God ends up directing us into. Um, all right. Um, there are other things that are challenging. These last few pages, just to kind of wrap things up here, just things to think about. Things that are described by psychiatric tools like the uh, the DSM-4, now the DSM-5. These are basically descriptions of things that are classified as disorders or conditions or those sorts of things by those who try to understand people's problems. Some of them are legitimately problems. Some of them are um, descriptions of sinful behaviors. Some of them are descriptions of uh, things that are not functioning right in the body. So the challenge of a tool like DSM-5 or a lot of the lingo gets thrown around in society is all of these things are sort of lumped in together as though they're the exact same kinds of things. Take something like someone who is um, prone to going back and forth between anger and being calm, right? Is that a physical thing connected with their body? Is it a moral thing connected with their responses before God? What do you think? It could be both. Yeah, it never is disconnected from spiritual realities, but it, there can be strong, um, strong things that affect it. So just um, if you do surgery on the lining of the brain, it can have an um, effect on the quickness to which you have an emotional response. Yeah. Can someone who has experienced that still learn to obey God and honor Him? Yes. And should we recognize that it's more complex than just stop being upset? Yeah. But we also recognize there's a point at which we have to say, you shouldn't be upset about this. And uh, the bottom line is, there are a, a ton of things to think about things that are true about us, how those things affect us, our responses to all of that before God in the context of our physical bodies as we think and want and choose to act. And the bottom line is we can please God in all of those things. So, um, last thing here. In contrast to the weaknesses of tools that psychi psychiatric community has come up with, and various kinds of Gnosticism, which is sort of like the body is bad, higher knowledge will solve all your problems, those sorts of things. The Bible, it says, gives a far more satisfying understanding of people. To be a person is to be in communion with other things. We are designed to respond to God with an accurate understanding of self, of one another, and of the circumstances in which we were placed. Adam and Eve never understood themselves apart from their relationship to everything else. To be human is to be in context. So we're going to pause there. We're going to go back to habits of grace for the next five or six weeks, starting in January, to finish up that book.
and then we'll come back to this one and talk about more about what is the context, what is it w that we respond to with people, with our physical bodies, toward God, all of those sorts of things. We'll pick up with the second section of this book, uh, probably um, late February, early March. So, we'll pause there for today. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you have made us fearfully and wonderfully, that even in a world that is corrupted by sin and has challenging circumstances, you have made it possible for us to be uh, in relationship with Christ, to be transformed by that relationship through the work of your Spirit, and to fulfill the plan that you as God our Father have laid out for us. We pray that you would help us to just continue to reflect on these things in a way that would honor you. And pray that you'll bless the service here in a few moments. In Christ's name, amen.